die. And he answers that prayer in his word. As we read and consider his word together, he promises that his spirit is present with us, that he is speaking to us, that he is at work in us. And so I want you to come continuing that prayer as we listen, as we listen to scripture together. And I'm going to read this whole chapter. It's a little bit longer than we normally read, but I'm going to read it because we need to hear it. Uh, We need to hear this incredible work that God has done for his people. And so join me, Exodus chapter 14, verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of bales of foam. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot, and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahirot, in front of Baals of Phon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this dramatic and incredible story, we come needing your help. Because we tend to hear these things and, and maybe we think they happen, maybe we don't. But whichever, we see them as distant from us. As a distant memory that has very little impact on tomorrow morning. So would you help us to come to know these words and to know that they are true. To know that this is your voice speaking to us now. That what you reveal here is vital for us tomorrow morning. Would you give us understanding? Would you give us clarity? Would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to be changed by what we hear? Open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Oxford English Dictionary caused a bit of a stir last year when it was announced uh, that the definition of the word literally would be changed. <laughs> the dictionary now says that literally can mean metaphorically, <laughs> which is exactly the opposite of what that word means, right? So literally, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, can now mean not literally. <laughs> and maybe you've noticed we've been drifting that way with that word for a while now. The way that people use it, uh, parodied hilariously by a character in the television show Parks and Rec. But we've drifted with that use of that word towards that 
definition, or maybe we should say toward that lack of definition. And whether you care or not, it raises an issue that we have, an issue that we have with words. Because words, by use, by overuse, by misuse, can tend to lose their weight. Words can tend to lose their meaning as we use them again and again. We can tend to speak them and to say them and not stop and consider what they really mean. What they really imply. What they mean for us. The weight that they have for us. And that is certainly true of the church. And it's certainly true of the language of the Christian faith. And it is certainly true of the word salvation. Salvation is a word that we use often, but that tends to lose its weight. We speak often of being saved, but rarely stop and pause to consider what that word means. And it becomes just another Christian cliche. Well, Exodus 14 can help us. I am convinced that if you were to go to any of the people whom God used to write the Bible and ask them, what does salvation mean? They wouldn't give you a definition. They would tell you a story. And it would be this story. They would tell you the story of Exodus 14 and say, that's what it means to be saved. That's what the word salvation means. And I am convinced of that because as you read through the Bible, when the Bible speaks of salvation, the images, the symbols, the patterns of this narrative are never far away. So, I want us to consider this story and the word salvation this morning. Not as just an interesting linguistic exercise. But I want us to consider this word, I want us to define this word with this story. Because it is a word that speaks to our deepest needs. And is a word that speaks of God's greatest work. So two questions. What is salvation and who is saved? The meaning of salvation and the recipients of salvation. So first of all, what is salvation? What is, what do we mean by salvation? Well, that word presumes danger, right? And we find plenty of danger here in this chapter. God's people, uh, the nation of Israel, are trapped. And on the one side, there is Pharaoh and his army and his chariots. Did you hear the word chariots repeated again and again in this chapter? It's because chariots were the cutting edge of military technology in this day. And so Pharaoh, as he sees the people of Israel walking away from him, decides, if I can't possess them, then no one can. And so I will chase them down and take them back or destroy them, whichever. And so he marshals all of his power, he marshals all of his technology, and comes with hardened opposition to God's will. That's one side. 
And on the other side, we have a large body of water. And the text tells us that God took his people to this body of water intentionally. And we'll see the intentions for that as we go along. But there's this large body of water that's often called the Red Sea. better translation is probably the Reed Sea. And so the people of God are between a rock and a hard place. And this dilemma leads them, not surprisingly, it leads them to panic. It leads them to despair. And they come in verses 11 and 12 and they cry out. And they say, we're in this dilemma and we have two options here. One option, slavery. Two options, death. We find here in this dilemma the option of slavery or the option of death. That's how they see their situation. And salvation presumes that danger, but it speaks to that danger and says there is a third option. There is a third option, and you can see that third option in what is missing in the complaint of the people. Because in their complaint, there's slavery and death, but there is no God. There is no God in the words with which they use to cry out. And God might be missing from their complaint, but He is not missing from their situation. He is not missing from this dilemma. He is very present. The end of chapter 13 tells us that God led His people out of Israel with a visible expression of His presence. Fire and smoke, which isn't surprising because that's how Moses encountered the presence of God in Exodus chapter 3. So God shows up as fire and smoke to lead His people out of Egypt. And God isn't present just to hang out. God isn't there just to hang out on the couch. No, He is present and He is active. He is present as a warrior fighting for His people. So He comes and He divides them from the army of Egypt. He divides the people in the armies of Pharaoh, and then he calls up a wind, the east wind, and divides the sea so that they can go through in safety and so that the armies of Egypt can be destroyed. God is present and active in this dilemma. He shows up. He expresses that he is with his people, but not just with them to comfort them, but with them to fight for them. So that at the end of this chapter, the people have moved from panic to worship. They have moved from the fear of Pharaoh to the fear of the Lord. Pull it all together. What is salvation? Salvation is God showing up to deliver his people. But not just that. Did you notice how God said again and again throughout this chapter, I am doing this for a bigger goal than just escape. I'm getting escape for you, but I want more. I want to get glory over Pharaoh and over Egypt. I want to show you that I am better than Pharaoh, that I am better than the gods of Egypt. So salvation is God showing up to deliver His people And to display his greatness. Is God present to fight for his people 
and to show his power. And as spectacular as this event of salvation is, we need to realize that it is only one piece of a larger work. This event is only one step in a larger journey. And it is a journey that involves us. It is a work that impacts us. And you can see that in the text, because God doesn't just deliver his people from Egypt, he delivers them through the sea. Now, understand that for the ancient Israelites and many of the peoples around them, the sea or large bodies of water, they weren't places that you go for vacation. The sea for the ancient Israelites, they were the source, it was the source of terror. It was, if they were to make horror movies, they would make them about the sea. It was a place of chaos and danger, a place of death and monsters. That's what the sea represented for them. And with that cultural mindset, now consider how the Bible begins. Genesis 1, God creates the world. And in this creation, how does God make life possible? He gathers the waters and dry land appears. Now, in the Exodus, how does God make life possible? He gathers the water and dry land appears. You see, this event... <coughs> is one part of a greater work of God saying, you see, you see what I did at creation? Now that's been broken, at, broken by sin, but I will do it again. I will do it again. This is one event in God's larger work of new creation, of remaking the world that has been ruined by sin. And that pattern continues throughout the Bible. So that the prophet Isaiah, talking to the people who are under the thumb of the Babylonian Empire this time, he's giving them hope. He's saying God is going to do a new work for you. He's going to bring you back to himself so that you will worship him. And he describes that work in terms of the Exodus. And he says, remember what God did back then? God divided Rahav. Rahav was a mythical sea monster. And the prophet was using that idea, that image, to describe the sea in Exodus. And he says, God divided the monster so that you could go through and have life. And God will do it again. He will do it again. He is a God who is committed to new creation. To overcoming the ruin of sin on behalf of His people. And that pattern continues not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. So that the Bible ends with a vision. It ends with the vision of God renewing all things. Of God creating a new heavens and a new earth. And what is missing from this new creation? Revelation 21, what's missing from this new creation? It says there's no tears. There's no death. And guess what else? There's no sea. There is, Revelation 21, as it gives us this vision of the renewal of all things, no sea. 
Why? Because God hates the beach? (laughs) No. No, because the sea is a symbol of chaos and evil. All that is against God's intentions for His creation. And this story, this pattern is telling us God will rid the world of evil. And He will remake His people as an expression of His glory and His beauty. Our view of salvation is too small. We think of salvation as self-help when the Bible describes salvation with sea monsters. We think salvation is feeling a little less guilty and maybe dealing with some personal sins and getting extended retirement at the end. The Bible says salvation is God eternally, gloriously present. It is the cosmic defeat of evil. It is us and all of creation remade as an expression of the beauty and the power of the one who is our creator and who is our new creator. And I think one of the reasons we want to scale back salvation is that we like manageable danger. We like manageable problems. And so we want our problem to be something that, you know, maybe we need a little help with it. But if we can kind of partner with God, we can tinker and we can figure it out. We want manageable manageable problems. So, for instance... uh, few of the guys here from Centerpoint, we went camping uh, this weekend, and we had a lot of fun. But I was thinking about camping. Camping is really creating a manageable problem for ourselves. It's creating manageable danger. We separate ourselves from some of the modern, conven- some of the modern conveniences of modern life, and we go out for a night and survive, right? <laughs> a very long and cold night, I might say. Manageable danger. That's fun for a weekend, but as a view of life, that is damnable heresy. Sin is not a problem that you can manage. It is not a dilemma that you can control. Sin is far more disastrous than you think it is. Not only for yourself, but for the world in which we live. So... We need a salvation that is bigger than we can imagine. Because of sin, if we are going to understand, if we're going to know the impact and the hugeness of God's work of salvation, we have to understand that because of sin, apart from God's intervention, we are with Israel. In this dilemma, where there are two options, slavery and death, And God's work of salvation is to say there is a third option. There is a third option, but how do we know that option is for us? If salvation is God showing up to deliver His people and display His greatness, who belongs to His people? Who fits in that category? Second question, who is saved? Who are the recipients of this work of salvation that God is doing? 
Well, I think if we had to guess an answer to that question, our intuition would direct us to two categories. I think we would say God saves obedient people. God saves people who do what he says. Or we would say God saves people of great faith. God saves people who really believe what he says. Eh, wrong. Think about it. Do either of those categories describe the people in this chapter whom God saves? No. What is the faith and obedience of the people of God? They want to go back to Egypt, so at the very least they will be buried in graves rather than dying in the wilderness. That's their faith. That's their obedience, but God still saves them. Why? Why does God save this people? Two reasons. First, Joseph. Remember Joseph? One of the twelve sons of Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Uh, He comes to Egypt himself under very bad circumstances. And he, he struggles for a while and has a rough life, but then things turn around for him. And he dies a very powerful and wealthy man. But on his deathbed, Joseph looks at his family and he says, Swear to me something. Swear to me that you will not bury me here in Egypt. Swear to me that you will keep my bones and you will take them with you when you leave. Why? Because Joseph knew the promises of God. He knew that God had promised his people more than Egypt. Even a good life in Egypt. God had promised them more. God had promised them a land where they would thrive and where they would live out his mission. And so Moses, we find out at the end of chapter 13, as he is leaving Egypt, he takes with him the bones of Joseph. Showing us, that detail is there to say to us, why does God save this people? God saves them because he's promised to save them. God saves them because he has promised to multiply them and to renew them and to renew all of creation through them. God saves them because they are a people of promise. That's the first reason. Second reason. God saves the people because of Joseph. He saves the people because of Moses. He saves the people because of his promises, and he saves the people because of his mediator. He saves the people through Moses acting on their behalf. Moses represents the people throughout this chapter. Moses is even rebuked in verse 15. The people have complained. Moses hasn't complained. God says to Moses, Why are you complaining? (laughs) Why are you crying out? Because Moses is the mediator of the people. He represents the people to God. And so he stretches out his hand over the waters and they divide. The people go through in safety. He stretches out his hand again and the doors close on the Egyptian army. God saves his people because they have a mediator. He saves them because there is someone acting on their behalf. So notice at the end of the chapter, the people are worshiping God. They're believing in God, but that's not all. What else are they doing? They also believe in Moses, the servant of the Lord. God saves people because they belong to his promise and because they belong to his mediator. 
which is good news for us, because Jesus is better than Joseph, and Jesus is better than Moses. Second Corinthians tells us that in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes for us. We belong to the promises of God because of Jesus, and so we are saved. The book of Hebrews, if you're doing community Bible reading with us, it told us this week that Jesus is a better mediator than Moses. He is the perfect mediator. Because he did not only stretch out his staff over the sea, Jesus walked into the sea. On the cross, Jesus walked into the floodwaters of evil and judgment. And they crashed on him. And he died. Why? So that he could create the dry ground of new life through his resurrection. Salvation comes to those who belong to God's promises and to his mediator. And so salvation comes to us through Jesus. And through Jesus alone. God delivers his people and displays his glory fully in him. Jesus is salvation. Now what about faith and obedience? If, it's, if the point isn't that God saves people of faith and obedience, the Bible still calls us to faith and obedience, right? Faith and obedience are important. But what this says to us is that faith and obedience are important as responses, not activators. You are not saved because of the perfection of your faith or the quality of your obedience. You are saved only because of Jesus, because it is that work that He and He alone accomplishes. Faith and obedience simply respond to the work that has already been done. Faith and obedience don't make it happen. They respond to what has already happened. And so in faith, we receive the reality that although because of our sin, we deserve to be on one side of the sea, because of Jesus, we're on the other side of the sea. And in obedience, we learn to live like it. We learn to live out that freedom. We learn to live out that identity that has been purchased for us by Jesus. But we want to contribute, don't we? We want a role in the drama. When someone invites us over for dinner, we have trouble just saying, okay, thanks, right? What's our response when somebody invites us over for dinner? What can I bring? God is our host in Jesus. It says nothing. I got it. You don't need to bring anything. Because it is my meal to prepare. It is my meal to serve to you through my son, Jesus. You want a role? You want a role in the drama? 
Okay, you can have the one that Moses gives to the people of Israel in verse 14. He says, the Lord will fight for you. Be quiet. Shut up and watch. That's your role. That's your role. Words matter. The word salvation matters. Not to just preserve some arcane terminology. But it matters for us to meditate on this word. To consider what God has done. Because in it, we know the freedom of a life responding to God's glorious work that He has accomplished through Jesus on our behalf. Let's pray.